The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Sportbox. Asian markets slide with the Hang Seng falling nearly 3% on geopolitical jitters and recession worries, while WTI crude drops below $93 a barrel. The Aussie dollar slides despite the Reserve Bank of Australia hiking interest rates by 50 basis points. The bank saying it's not on a preset path and is warning inflation has yet to peak. Beijing issues a firm warning ahead of U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's expected visit to Taiwan, insisting its military won't sit by idly if it feels its sovereignty is threatened. And Pinterest shares surge in extended trade despite an earnings miss, as activist investor Elliott Management confirms a large stake in a social media company. Welcome to the show, everybody. We've got lots of things on the plate for you today. But first of all, before we move forward, let's move backwards and take a look at the session that was on Wall Street. You can see here that the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq finishing just marginally in negative territory and also breaking a three-day winning streak. So maybe just a little bit of profit-taking kicking in there. And of course, we're also starting to see creeping into uh, the region's markets that are, um, that are still trading and already open, uh, that they are just a little bit cautious ahead of the expected visit by Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. We'll bring you more on that in just a second. We've also got the fact that we saw the ISM manufacturing index over there in the United States. It did fall still above the 50 boom or bust level, but nonetheless, it was very much the theme over the past 24 hours. We've got PMIs left, right and centre, including uh, the manufacturing PMI right here in the Eurozone, uh, which did indeed fall at its strongest pace since the Eurozone debt crisis all the way back. 10 years ago in 2012. Let's uh, flip over the boards and show you what's going on on the uh, the bond market side of things. We saw Treasury yield falling back, actually a little bit mixed to be honest. Uh, and we've got the US 10-year note here now yielding 2.54%. So the 10-year continuing to pull back as we're also starting to see the market uh, at least hoping for, and uh, starting to price in a, uh, a less hawkish Fed, I guess what we're calling the pivot, even though we've had a barrage of people coming out from Larry Summers to Neil Kashkari and now former uh, New York Fed president, Bill Dudley adding his voice saying, whoa, uh, not so fast. Um, still the US Fed has a lot of heavy lifting to do to fight against inflation and perhaps the market is getting a little too ahead of themselves. Uh, but the two year note, uh, still uh, very much above the 10-year and also the five-year for that matter at 2.84%. Let's move along and show you what's happening on the dollar crosses here. Very interesting action going on in the dollar. Indeed, the DXY has been falling now for the fourth negative session in a row. Uh, we saw an overnight trade that uh, it's holding around one month lows and, uh, and the dollar yen rate indeed sitting at 130.66 at least 
a, uh, a two-month low, um, 130.66, goodness me, a drop there of seven-tenths of a percent. And we know that in currency terms, a drop of seven-tenths of a percent is really quite a lot. So uh, perhaps a little bit of safe haven move going on there with people going into the Japanese yen, which uh, traditionally, along with things like gold, etc., has been seen as somewhat of a, a place of cover and uh, naturally a little bit of caution ahead of the uh, visit to Taiwan by Pelosi. Euro dollar sitting at 102.71 dollar US. Uh, 6.76 sterling dollar can't seem to make up its mind sitting at 122 and 50. Uh, let's take a look at what's happening in the gold patch big drops in uh, in energy and uh, move to the upside in gold so we've got Brent here sitting at 99.08 drop of one percent there WTI uh, sitting at 93 and change also a drop but overnight in the US much sharper drop than that. Indeed, we saw a drop of 3.8% for the Brent price and 4.8% for NYMEX there. So naturally, as we got those, uh, those PMIs coming out yesterday and just pointing to increased slowdown around the globe, whichever economy you're looking at, uh, definitely not a good signal for what's going on with energy demand. Indeed, it's actually getting cheaper for those at the pump in the US as well. We've seen about a 60, 60 cent drop, I think, over the past, uh, over the past month for those filling up. Uh, spot gold sitting at uh, 17.72. Uh, spot gold, I mean gold's probably enjoying both the pullback in the US dollar and just a bit of geopolitical jitters thrown into the mix there as well. Indeed the gold uh, settled at its highest overnight since uh, January the 4th, I do believe. Uh, let's take a look at what's happening in Asia. It is red across the board there. So it's not just the PMIs. Indeed, you know those global barometers like South Korea, Jeff, also Taiwan, which give a sort of a, a pulse check on what global demand is looking at, looking like. So both of those PMIs fell. Uh, but also we got a big 1.4% contraction in the Hong Kong economy itself. Uh, but naturally, uh, Pelosi is just sending shockwaves across the region. Um, you know, quite a lot of saber rattles going on and some hard talk from China. They said that they will take strong and firm measures to respond against this trip. So what China will do, what Taiwan will do, how the US will then do, it just becomes a you know, whole um, sort of a, a pit of tit for tat that we just do not want to get into. And I suspect that uh, the next few days are going to be increasingly tense on that front. So you can see across the Asian region there that it is being felt. Over to you. Yeah, terrific. Thank you, Mandy, for that. And we'll circle back to the story about Nancy Pelosi because clearly it is going to dominate the focus for markets. And I think, as, as Mandy's been reporting, you can see from the market action this morning in Asia that it really is undermining confidence. Something else that is uh, not helping this morning is the fact the Reserve Bank of Australia has pulled the trigger again on interest rates, a hike of 50 basis points and a warning that inflation is yet to peak. The increase brings rates in Australia to 1.85%. The RBA's board pledged to continue doing what is necessary to tame inflation, saying it expects CPI to hit 7.5% this year before falling in 2023. And I think it's worth just reminding ourselves just how quickly these rates are going up yes. in Australia. Um, 2020, mm -hmm. we were still seeing rates come down effectively mm -hmm. as the RBA was managing concerns around COVID and the slowdown in economic activity. Right. And then, boom, 
The RBA responded very aggressively mm -hmm. in May to the first hints that inflation was going to be sticky and problematic here. And we got a 25 basis point move. It was just almost like a probing move to see how the market would respond. And then we've now had three successive 50 basis point moves mm -hmm. here in the space of three months. So this is very rapid. This is a very sharp adjustment to the way households and businesses are going to have to think about servicing their debts in Australia. Absolutely. If you talk about servicing those debts, if people want to have sort of a quantifiable number to hang their hat on with regards to what this actually means in cold, hard cash, another 50 basis points means if you've got a mortgage, Jeff, of about 750000 Australian dollars, that's an extra $211 a month that you have to pay mm. on top of, of course, all the other increases and on top, of course, of the much higher cost of living. So here's the problem. Now we're starting to see some calls coming from various parties for the resignation of the RBA board and governor, Philip Lowe, because he got it wrong. Mind you, I'm going to defend him for two seconds, a lot of central bankers got it wrong. But I mean, even just last year, as recently as last year, Philip Lowe was saying that they're probably not going to be starting hiking until 2024. So that is a big error, right? To say that they're not going to be starting until 2024. And now you've got these really hard and fast successive hikes. So consumer confidence, is dropping to recession, recessionary levels. We're starting to see um, a lot of cracks appearing in the housing market as well. It's, it's also coming off sharply, and a lot of Australians are up to their debt, in, um, up to their eyeballs in debt, and, and their house is, you know, their, their main asset. So when we see house prices coming off, it really does psychologically have a very big hit to sort of a negative wealth effect. So. You know, will we be pushed into recession? I don't know, but um, it's definitely um, something that, uh, you know, people are starting to be concerned about here and elsewhere. The, the, the curious um, market response has been to allow the dollar, Aussie dollar, to slide at this point. Yep. And immediately after the announcement, we saw the Australian dollar weaken against the mm. US currency. Now, I guess you can read into that perhaps that because of the Pelosi factor, the markets are very focused on finding a safe haven currency and maybe the US dollar against the Aussie dollar looks a little safer. But it is a perverse reaction on the back of uh, a significant mm. interest rate hike here. You would have thought that would have helped in terms of interest rate differentials, provide some support to the Aussie dollar at this point, but it's not. I guess because 50 basis points was already largely factored in and we didn't get any even further hawkish surprises out of the RBA. So maybe that can help explain the reaction. But also the Australian dollar is a good risk sentiment barometer. And right now it does seem to be a bit risk off ahead of the Taiwan visit by Nancy Pelosi. And also we saw oil prices come sharply off in overnight trade, right? Commodity prices have also been uh, pairing, pairing back on all the increasing concerns about the global economy and demand for all the, all the you know, commodities and wonderful things that come out of the ground that Australia produces and the, the rest of the world you know, keeps on gobbling. So um, I guess it's a confluence of factors that are weighing on the Australian dollar at the mm. moment. Okay, well, we've got the Bank of England uh, this week. Uh, we are expecting uh, that the Bank of England will also pull the trigger on interest rates. The MPC is also under pressure to keep pace with global tightening. Officials have hiked rates by 25 basis points in consecutive meetings since December, uh, but obviously major global central banks have accelerating, accelerated their tightening strategies 
in the last month. The Bank of Canada surprised the market with a 100 basis point hike. The Fed went for what Jerome Powell described as an unusual hike of 75 basis points. The ECB kicked off its cycle with a 50 basis point jump, while the Reserve Bank of New Zealand also lifted interest rates by half a percentage point. Well, the Fed has led the charge on tightening monetary policy, and Daniel Niles, founder and portfolio manager at Satori Fund uh, Management, told CNBC the FOMC is keen to learn from mistakes that were made back in the 70s. If you look at the futures markets, people have the Fed cutting in the March quarter of next year and rates going down. And I think what you're going to find, and that's really what drove a lot of the rally last week, is there was a 5% gain in the S&P in the last three trading days. And 3% of that was the day of the Fed uh, meeting where they gave the decision. And I think what you're going to find out is this Fed is going to stay more aggressive for longer than people think to make sure they don't make the same mistake that was done in the 1970s, which by the way, they talked about, which is twice they started to cut before they give them the chance for the economy to slow down. And then inflation got worse before Volcker finally had to kill it off in 1981. There you go. Well, let's bring in Andrew Lake, head of fixed income at Mirabau Asset Management. Andrew, good morning to you. The, the conundrum here, of course, is that even as we see all of these central bank hike, uh, central banks hiking interest rates, as we look at the uh, the Treasury curve, the 10-year yield is back down to two spot 64. The seven-year, two spot 67. All of these um, declines in yields beginning to argue that the market is already trying to factor in likely recession and interest rate cuts. What's your read on the market's assessment and whether it's getting the message clear? Well, good morning. Um, yes, I mean, it's it's been a particularly uh, confusing week that we've had since or a few days since we've had since uh since the federal reserve meeting last week i mean i think that the market is definitely pricing in this um this kind of pivot i mean i i didn't take the meeting to be particularly dovish but obviously we've spent a lot of time talking about the one sentence where uh chairman powell spoke about uh, slowing down interest rates at some point in the future and i think the market has, has really jumped the gun a little bit and gone straight from um, you know, slow down to inflation coming down to cutting interest rates in the space of, you know, what, what is basically six to seven months, which seems particularly unrealistic. I think if you look at what you're, what, you know, if you're buying treasuries at 255, you're really expecting inflation to be coming down quite significantly over the next several, uh, several years. And, and from where I sit, it, it, whilst I, I do believe inflation is going to peak and come off over the next couple of months, I think the trajectory to that, um, you know, the two percent or two and a half percent, whatever you want to call it, is going to be fairly. It's going to be a lot longer than the market's pricing in. So I think we have jumped the gun somewhat um, with regard to how treasuries have reacted over the last several days. Yeah, what's interesting is I think all of these banks, as they've hiked aggressively, they've basically yanked any forward guidance. The RBA this morning also making the point that there is no preset path here for policy, effectively making it quite difficult now for the market to read the minds of the, the rate setters. How do you position given that much opacity? Well, I think you've got to take, there's two things here. We are now going into the summer months, so liquidity is beginning to get tight. So there is um, there is a lot of variation as we always get over the summer months with regard to market uh, reactions to to news. So that's one thing, you know, these are not 
normal times uh, as, as we as we sit here today in August. Um, but you're right, the, the the uncertainty has now increased significantly. We no longer have forward guidance from uh, from the Federal Reserve. The ECB is in the same position. Um, you know, we're, we're in a situation now where we are now looking at uh, data points, and we are going to see increased volatility as as we move into those data points. Obviously, the next uh, the big one next is next week for the CPI in the US. Um, you know, likely that's going to be a little bit uh, weaker given energy prices have come off from a top line level. But but these are the situations that we're going to have to face over the next several months. Has inflation begun to peak and come down? Is there a trend there? Can we can we be confident that we're going to see inflation come down enough um, for uh, for the Federal Reserve to begin to start thinking about pausing interest rates? And let's face it, we are in August now. We've only got four or five months to the end of the year. Inflation is still at uh, eight, nine percent across the developed world. Um, and it would, it would, to my mind anyway, would would require a, a quite a deep and severe recession now with inflation really collapsing for us to look at that pivot that we're talking about early next year. So I think there's a lot to, there's a lot there's an awful lot to play for. The market is 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 very uncertain. We have uh we have treasuries at what I think are uh, quite extreme levels given where we where we are on on the interest rate curve and the same for the ECB look at bunds bunds have come in 100 basis points as well on the 10 year. Um and we have risk assets which have been rallying in tandem. So at the same time we have a, a correlation of both risk and uh riskless assets um rallying at the same time which which never um uh, continues for very long. So there is something, I think, in terms of how the market is reacting here. And I think it's basically around confusion, but also an element of optimism and perhaps over-optimism about where this is all going. A lot of it is wishful thinking, isn't it? Uh, you know, you can exactly. often interpret and, and read into uh, any that. commentary <laughs> the way you like. Well, wishful thinking have been the two words that a lot of commentators have been using in their pushback of the market's thinking around this pivot. So, Andrew, where do you think that the US 10-year will be at the end of the year? Right. Well, that, that's the that's a six hundred million dollar question, isn't it? Um, I think, uh, from my perspective, um, it should certainly be higher. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna be a little bit uh, vague here, but but I think so. I think we we were thinking, you know, when we think about where the where the peak of treasury of ten year treasuries uh, was only three or four months ago, people were talking about four percent, three and a half percent. I think that's gone now. I think we're looking at a peak probably closer to three, maybe three. 310, 325, but but a lot of that is going to depend upon where inflation goes. I think at 255, where we are today, and to your point around the Pelosi meeting, a lot of we're now pricing in some geopolitical risk into that. So there is a bit of noise there. But I think as we move through the next several months, we'll begin to get an idea of where interest rates go and inflation is going. And I think that the market is over anticipating the Federal Reserve's um, willingness to to fight inflation. So I think that we're going to see um, maybe not as many rate rights, uh, rate hikes that, that were being priced in six months ago, but certainly we're going to see, um, you know, a, a big move in September. And I think that um, that whilst inflation will begin to come down, I don't think it's going to come down as quickly as the as the market is expecting. So I think we're going to be stuck somewhere in the 280, 290 kind of range um, as we get towards the end of the year. Now, if if I'm wrong and inflation is still very sticky, then obviously you know we're talking about a much higher level. So you know, in a way, it's it's really hard to tell right now because although we're seeing this. The, the the mark the the economy in the U.S. beginning to slow is still very strong. The consumer is still spending. Look at the results from Amazon and Apple uh, last week. They're still buying, and employment is still very tight. So in that instance, we're not looking at recession now. Inflation is still 
you know, it's a backward looking looking measure, but we're still looking at inflation that will continue to be you know, fairly elevated for, for a little while longer. The question is, how quickly is that trajectory going to fall? And I think as we move towards the end of the year, we'll probably begin to see it fall, but it's not going to fall as much as one would expect. So I think we're going to be in that range of maybe, you know, 270 to 3%. It certainly feels like there's a lot of um, a lot of confusion out there, a lot of uncertainty, isn't there? And, and as you as you rightly said earlier, a bit of mixed messaging from the central banks themselves as well. How do you formulate a strategy then? Um, it's very difficult. Uh, you know, we're we're in the middle of a of a, of a rally. Um, I mean, from from our perspective, we are still pretty cautious on. Um, on duration and um, and credits, obviously those are the two key aspects of, of, of fixed income. Uh, you know, where we are now with regard to spread, so high yield, for example, you know, 500 sub 500. I think that the market is over anticipating uh, the slowdown that is underestimated the slowdown that we're going to see. So I think that um, from from our perspective, we remain quite cautious over the next two to three months uh, as we wait to see how quickly the the market slows. From a duration perspective. Um, you know, certainly at 255, I'm, I'm more cautious on duration as well. So at the moment, we are, we are in a much more cautious environment. I think having said that, we still feel that um, once we get past this noise and, and we move to and we begin to see um, credit spreads move a little bit wider, then we would be, again be looking to to re-enter the market. So we have been buying you know longer duration assets, um, uh, um, you know over four percent, which was a, was a few weeks ago. We've been looking at high yields, um, at, you know around a 550, 600 basis point spread, um, with the view that as a, over the next year or two, those assets will really outperform. But I think in the short, very short term, we have to be quite careful about where this is all going. And certainly over the summer months, when we have quite large flows, uh, quite quite large moves in the market in, 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 with 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 very little liquidity. I think we just have to kind of try and ignore that. So for, from from my perspective, you know, bear market rallies quite quite painful. But at the end of the day, I do think that we are going to see um, risk reset itself as we move into this into September again. Yes, and you're absolutely right. Very low volume at the moment. Maybe that's the best thing to do, considering what's going on in the world, to just take a summer holiday and come back when it's all calmed down. Andrew Lake, Head of Fixed Income, Miribo Asset Management, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, let's talk a bit about uh, Cavastro. This is a German chemicals company that um, produces polyurethane, polycarbonates, the kind of things that you use in a, a home appliances, uh, lighting and LED systems, batteries and chargers and so on and so forth. And the numbers are not great. I mean, the company uh, pre-guided that it would take a bit of a hit in the second quarter. So let me just walk you through these. Um, the company reporting for the second quarter a net profit in at 199 million euros, which was slightly better, I think, than the um, analyst expectations. Sales coming in at 4.7 billion. Again, just ahead of the adjusted uh, guidance from the analysts at 4.19 billion. But the group had negative cash flow of 462 million. They've lowered their 2022 guidance. Um, the group previously saw a bit of between 2 and 2.5 billion. They're now talking 1.7 to 2.2 billion. They do expect continued impact on global supply chains. And of course, um, if you are a chemicals company, high energy prices are not good news. Um, high inflation on the input cost side and weak global economic growth do not make a very nice cocktail for this business. So that net profit in at 199 million euros is actually down 
55.7% from the year-ago period. We will catch up with Marcus Steilerman. He will join us for a first on CNBC interview coming up at 9.05 Central European time. We'll look forward to that. In the meantime, let's take a look at Pinterest shares surging over 20% in extended trade. This is after activist investor Elliott Management disclosed that it is the company's top shareholder. Shares were also buoyed by better-than-expected user numbers for the second quarter, which offset revenue and earnings misses. The social media group did warn investors that it expects lower-than-expected demand from U.S. big-box retailers and mid-market advertisers as well, which have reduced their ad spend due to weakening consumer demands. Well, the earnings parade does continue. Indeed, coming up on the show, DSM. It's posted a second quarter earnings and revenue beat. It's also unveiled some new climate targets. The co-CEO, Dimitri DeVries, will be joining us next. And catch up with the podcast. It's got everything this morning from the RBA interest rate decision right through to whether Nancy Pelosi is going to land in Taiwan. Uh, you can catch the podcast, of course, at all good podcast suppliers. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Everybody to Squawk Box or DSM posting a second quarter earnings and revenue beat while its net profits soared 14% in the first half to 335 million euros. The Dutch specialty chemicals maker reiterated its outlook while also setting new climate targets to accelerate its route to net zero. Dimitri de Vries is co-CEO of DSM and joins us now. Dimitri, thank you so much for joining us today. I see here that you're talking about resilient demand and strong pricing, two things that are very enviable in the current environment. What do you put your resilience down to? Yeah, good morning and, and thanks for having me. And indeed, we're very pleased to announce our a good first half of 2022 with a with great organic growth, 10%. Uh, indeed, as you said, with resilient demand, and, and that resulted in confidence for the second half with a, a positive outlook that's unchanged. And that resilient demand came to a, a few things. I think at the end of the day, what we've seen uh, in today's world is that health for people is there to stay. People are really thinking about the health for people, uh, about their immunity, uh, and take care of their health. And that helped our health, nutrition and care business, but also food and beverage business. Then what we've also seen is that in the animal nutrition space, um, with the growing population, there is still a keen demand for, for proteins. Uh, but we need to do that in a sustainable way. And that is exactly what DSM is all about. Sustainable farming, our animal nutrition and health is very keen to create those ingredients which reduce emissions and help the health of the animals. So uh, it's, uh, it's that why it's very resilient for us. Indeed, talking of reducing emissions, uh, I see that you're also speeding up your, uh, your, your targets and your, your path towards being 100% depend, uh, dependent on that renewable energy. How much of that is directly as a result of the issue that's going on right now with Russia? Well, I mean, as DSM, <clears throat> we always look uh, a bit longer term. So we started in 2018, where our renewable energy was only 3%. And we took it as our, our commitment and also our responsibility to reduce that, uh, to improve that as renewable energy. And we set our targets originally to 50%. 
then to 75. And we've made so much progress um, on that target that we now said, hey, before 2030, we would like to have 100%. So that was not indirectly, neither directly linked to what's happening today, although that is helping us. So at the end of the day, uh, today we're at 77% and obviously is helping us in today's weird environment where gas is, uh, is, is very difficult to get. So we're also happy with that. We're not only doing renewable energy, um, we're also looking at biomass at our facilities um, just to, to be less dependent on gas. Although for all our renewable energy, but also energy and gas, um, we're not very energy intensive and we're not using it as feedstock. So for us, it's more taking your commitment uh, for a brighter world than anything else. Dimitri, I remember when we caught up with the business in the first quarter, one of the issues the board was looking at very closely was just the supply chain problem. Um, coming into this quarter, it seems you're much more comfortable now with the outlook for the second half of the year. Does that mean that all of those supply chain problems are largely resolved? Uh, well, I wish I could say yes, but unfortunately it's not the case. I feel sometimes like being in a sailing boat in this big ocean where the weather is still great, the sun is shining with good resilient demand. Um, but being on that boat in the waters, it's still pretty stormy with, uh, with COVID cases still in China, uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, but also the inflationary context. Um, so what we think is that um, with China and the COVID, hopefully a bit, a bit of relief, um, we are getting out of these, these capacity issues going forward. We have to say that in quarter two, our plans were not running at a full 100%. Although our people also stayed camping at our site just to maintain the, the production and capacity uh, going forward. So, no, it's not all, all over yet, but we are uh, having a global infrastructure. We're very confident that we can keep it running, um, but it will also be challenging in the second half. Mm. And just as we look at the, um, uh, the mix of business here, the health, nutrition and biosciences uh, division, uh, just give us a sense of, of where you're seeing the most, most strength at the moment and what risks there may be from a slowdown in consumer activity as that feeds back up the pipe to the businesses you supply into. Yeah, so I think the biggest risk um, which we have countered is inflation. It's, a, it's a, an unparalleled cost in inflationary environment. As you've seen in quarter two, we had an 8% price component. So we definitely are bringing that into our top line. Um, however, we never know what the cost will be in the second half. So we need to stay alert and stay sharp. Uh, and we also need to see uh, how that pricing is going through the value chain. Uh, the beauty of our, our, our ingredients is that um, these ingredients really matter. They are functional to the health of the people and health of the planet. And we are only a small percentage of the cost of goods sold of the end product. So uh, in that sense, ingredients are always needed. And that's also why we have resilient demand. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.